Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. We're bringing you a second podcast this week. We decided one, we wanted to do it one because we're, we want to do more than one a week when possible. Uh, it's a little, it's been a little harder than normal. And two, it dawned on us that this would be, that we had not done any punditry for the midterms. And this is the last podcast before the world historic midterms on Tuesday. So what I did was actually yesterday, we had logistical problems trying to figure out how we could get uh, this guy Ben Sass on to talk about his book, which seemed like something we should do, given how often he's on here and how he's a friend of the podcast, as it were. And so uh, I recorded an interview, a conversation with him from home yesterday. This was Wednesday. Uh, thanks in part to the help of Scott Immergut, who our friend from Ricochet, who helped coordinate it. And so we're going to play that now. And then on the back end, Jack and I will discuss various and sundry things in the news, and I will give you my uh, midterm predictions such as they are. And uh, that's about it. So I'll see you on the other side. Now here's uh, Senator Ben Sass and his book on giant ants. Greetings, dear listeners. This is a special bonus episode of The Remnant. For complicated reasons, we haven't had uh, Ben Sass on sooner for his new and incredibly timely book, uh, Them, which is, of course, about the giant an ants that plagued Southern California in 1954. But uh, we have... Thank you for knowing that. It, too many people have thought it was about something current, and I want them to know it's about film history. So thank you. Yeah, no, it's important. Um, and also, hey, by the way, congrats on that huge win against Bethune Cookman. That was that was great. <laughs> um, you need to start somewhere when you're rebuilding, <laughs> which is also sort of a theme of your book. Uh, so, you know, we don't have a lot of time because you're you're you're. Are you driving your Uber right now? I wish I were. I'm in a fight with Senate Ethics. I'm temporarily suspended from Uber, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do Lyft and just not tell them. Well, you know, during Teapot Dome, a lot of senators were corrupted by their Uber driving. Um, it was a big issue. It's, it's actually a little little known fact about corrupt New York City politics. It, it, I mean, for centuries, but usually most of it was app-based, and it was often ride-sharing. <laughs> All right. So for those who uh, haven't been listening to me and, and the senator talk on this podcast uh, for a long time now, uh, the book Them is kind of – it's almost creepy in how much it mirrors so much of my thinking and so much of the stuff that I've been talking about and thinking about. And I can't quite tell how much I got from SAS and how much I didn't. But for those who don't know, let me ask you the, the single greatest question you can ever be asked on a book tour. What's your book about? It's about stuff I learned from Jonah Goldberg. Uh, All right, that's it. All right, we're done. It was great to have you on. <laughs> Our work here is done. Um, so I divided it into three parts on purpose because I don't. I think the word tribes and tribalism are a shorthand that often mislead, uh, lead us astray rather than actually help us figure out what's going on right now. So I think we need to distinguish between bad tribes and good tribes because humans are meant to be relational beings. We're not just nouns. We're also verbs. We want to do stuff together. We're actors, um, but we're actors in, in communities and in groups. And so I think tribes is an important word that we often say as if it's just a bad thing. But in a sense, your family and your extended family are a tribe. Your friends are a part of the tribe. Uh, your theological or worldview framework and your worshiping communities, they're a, a, a tribe. And work is often has the feel of a, a good tribe. But right now, all four of those things, family, friends, 
uh, shared work or vocation, uh, co-workers, and um, worshiping communities, all four of those things are heavily connected to place and places being undermined because we're living through a digital revolution. The digital revolution is going to produce more total economic output than anybody has ever envisioned in all of human history. But even as we're getting rich, um, people tend to feel really lonely and uh, like they don't have any we. There are no shared projects. And so I think political tribalism is a less important story, but it's the thing that people are paying a lot of attention to at this moment. But I think political tribalism is ramping precisely because the good tribes are collapsing. They're being undermined by this sense that we can be rootless, which is something that technology whispers in our ear, uh, partly for good, but largely for ill. Right. I mean, that's, that's sort of a point I, I, I harp on a lot these days is that we are we are hardwired to want to belong to groups that's how we evolved that's how we survived in our evolutionary environment so the problem isn't tribalism it's how we attach to the wrong things you know it's how we sort of bond to the wrong things and and it seems to me that the politics of the moment are a direct consequence of the fact that we don't find a sense of belonging meaning close to home so instead we're looking to get it from washington and from national politics which you can't do um, well said. Um, common enemy make, and common enemies make sense, but they're no substitute from ac- for actually having friends and for actually having meaning work, meaningful work. And right now, I think we're going to politics looking for common enemies to fill a vacuum in a lot of people's soul. Loneliness really is epidemic in our time, and unless we deal with that upstream from politics problem, the politics can't really fix any of this. So you know, knowing a lot, of, I mean, following a lot of this stuff. Your your version of the things that give you happiness differs slightly from the one I get from Arthur Brooks in two ways. One, you very rarely, and I can understand why, mention genes because uh, you know some people are just born happy or born miserable bastards, and there's very little we can do with that component. So why talk about it? As I get that, but you also say meaningful work, where Arthur says earned success which is a slightly different thing. You can get it, earn success from work, but you can also get it from being a stay-at-home mom. I think you mean the same yeah. thing, but is there a difference there that I'm missing? Great point. So first of all, let me just acknowledge your first one. I, I buy it that Arthur's right, that he, a lot of things actually do flow from your genes. You can sort of thank your mom or blame your mom. Uh, that there are things that are just rooted in our biology. But of all those things we can make a difference about, both individually and in the way we serve our neighbor and what kind of communities we seek to build outside politics or even in politics, um, I think the things we can affect are the non-gene ones. But on the point about his, his earned success phrase, or what I call work, I'm meaning much more broadly a sort of older, in my, in my tradition, a reformational sense of vocation or calling. And so it would include all the different duties and roles that we have. So I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I'm a, I'm a senator for a time. I'm a Republican. I'm a football addict. I'm a conservative. I'm a Nebraskan. Um, but I'm also just, I'm, I'm not just, I'm a neighbor, right? Like I, it, we have a, a widow, a widower uh, down the street from us. And we have another guy whose wife has Alzheimer's bad and he's trying to care for her and manage through all the stuff of not putting her in a nursing home. Um, and you know, just all the horrible stuff that goes with having somebody you've loved for a lot of life, not even be sure of who she is anymore. And when I look at my teenage daughters, uh, and you know, on a day when they're uh, addicted to some bad thing that they think happened on Instagram, um, I'm like, let's lock the phones up and go love Mr. Dillon. He has a need. He's five doors away. You know, let's bake him some food and let's go ask if we can mow his lawn. 
right? And so I, I'm meaning by vocation uh, or shared work, all of those callings, all, all of Arthur's stuff earns success as well, not just your paid vocation. Right, yeah. I mean, earned success is, gets at this idea that if you disappeared tomorrow, you would be missed by a lot of people. Right, that you're making a contribution that is meaningful in different spheres of your life. So, I mean, I think it means pretty much the same thing that you're talking about. I was just wondering why there was the the difference. I mean, I guess meaningful work is a more accessible thing for more people. Um, so, and and maybe let me let me add one tiny thing there too, which is I do think that some of what's going to disrupt this really fast is at a political level. We tend to talk about. Um, a lot of stuff like as if work is just about the way you uh, get enough money to put bread on the table. And obviously that is a central uh, calling for all of us um, who have kids is you, you need to be putting bread on the table, but work is more than just the paycheck you take home. And I don't think we're paying enough attention to the shortening duration of jobs and how that's going to transform life. Hunter gatherers and agrarians from 10,000 years ago to 150 years ago, they didn't have a sense of job choice. And right. so job choice is only a widespread phenomenon with the industrial revolution. And you've written a ton about uh, this stuff as well. Um, there was massive disruption to society from 1870, 80 to 1910 to 20. Those 40 or 50 years of urbanization and industrialization caused huge upheaval in community as people went from rural uh, to urban in lots of the world and definitely in our country. And I think that's the only real analog to think about the moment we're going through, except our problems are going to be much more complicated than theirs because they had job choice one time. It came to you sometime between age 12 and 22, and you had to go get a job. You didn't just assume you were going to be a nomad like you know grandparents forevermore or farmer like grandparents forevermore backwards in your genealogy. Now you had to pick a job, but we're going to live through a world where you're going to have job choice again and again and again at 35, 40, 45, 50. Um, there's going to be disruption of your work, and it means you're not going to naturally have built-in coworkers, and that's going to lead to even more exacerbated loneliness. And I, I just don't think we're attending nearly enough to how much disruption is coming when mid-career people need to get retrained for vocation and work and earn success again. It, it, there's huge economic output and benefit that's going to come from it collectively, obviously, but I, I don't think we're dealing enough with the psychic risks. Yeah, I mean, it seems on the political side, the, the danger, I mean, the periods that you're talking about are also the periods of the, you know, the rise of mass man and also mass politics where you get, you know, I mean, there's a reason why FDR, who managed that period better than a lot of the other of his contemporaries, but he talked about the forgotten man, you know, the guy who was sort of lost in the switches of industrial capitalism. And that was a message that caused centralization in politics all over the place. Isn't part of the problem, though, that centralization accelerates the very problems that we're talking about? I mean, if you have – it seems to me that you know the Obama vision of a life of Julia creates a very strong centralized state and kind of withers away the mediating institutions or little platoons or associations or whatever de Tocquevillian phrase you want to use and just leaves the individual – how do you actually yeah. re rebuild the sort of the yeasty sinewy stuff in the middle that is actually where we get all of our meaning and our satisfaction? Uh, thank you for saying yeasty. Uh, it's been three <laughs> days since anybody used the adjective yeasty with me, and I've been hoping for it. So really grateful for that. Uh, well, sometimes when people one, are selling beer at the stadium, do people ask for a nice yeasty beer? 
Probably uh, not in, in, in the in the Big Ten. We don't sell uh, alcohol at our football games, but uh, it's something we should reconsider. And I'm sure if we marketed it under the name Yeasty, we'd have a chance. Your point about earned success and, and my sort of answer about vocation kind of gets at this fundamental point about needing to be needed, right? Humans need to be needed. We, it's great to have uh, economic surplus and to have bountiful harvest. But at the end of the day, we're people who want to matter in the world. And if you if you do disappear and nobody cares, then your life probably wasn't very important. Well, I know what it means to be needed when I've got to care for a seven year old that's sick. Right. Like my my youngest kid had the flu a couple of weeks ago. And when I need to attend to him in the middle of the night, I didn't want to do it. Um, but man, did I know that I mattered, right? I, I actually was needed. And I think that a lot of these people who do reduce the world to uh, kind of just economic materialism as the Obama life of Julia did, implying that if, if only the government could do a guaranteed income for folks, and I don't mean to disparage uh, some thoughtful people who've tried to defend um, universal basic income or whatever, but I, I do think it misses the basic point that humans are a lot more than just material beings who are trying to have a, an account that has enough registry in it. Uh, we want to do stuff because I, I think we're created uh, to be workers. And in, in my, my view, we're sort of living out a life of gratitude to God and, and trying to be co-creators and, and serve a neighbor. And so I, I do think these people that think that there's a political solution far away, this is what is really required to rebuild that yeasty, sinewy texture. And so one of the most important starting points is to have the right diagnosis about what problem we're dealing with. The problem we're dealing with is that people are, there's more than this, but people are lonely when they don't have shared projects and shared causes. And so you have to rebuild it with your Tocquevillian words like little platoons, because those are the places where neighbors actually need you. Right. So how do you do that? Well, uh, you don't you don't do it by starting with the assumption that politics are first. Right. So we don't want to um, we're we're against the idea that there is some meta political solution to the fact that you live in a neighborhood and you have a body and you have actual neighbors who need you and you need them. And we know that there's data that shows that if you know the person who lives two doors down from you, you're high, much more likely to be happy. Uh, and if you don't know the person who lives two doors down from you, you're less likely to be happy. And the ways we're consuming technology now are warping our sense of agency to think about stuff that's really far away. Right. With the way the way we're consuming news, you know, there's this misfit from between the fact that there are actually far less kidnappings in America now than there were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But the way we consume information has a lot of parents believing that there are far more kidnappings because we're taking in the information of the experience of every one of these bad news moments. Um, and we need to actually re-embrace callings at the places where we live. So you have to make friends. You have to actually invite people over for dinner. You have to actually put your phone down. Maybe you should cancel your cable subscription. But we know that the opposite is happening today, right? The hosting has been cut in, a, in half in America over the last 20 years. The average American just over two decades ago hosted in their home 14 times a year. Right now, the average American is hosting people, inviting people in only eight times a year. You're going to be happier and your neighbors are going to be happier if you take that back to 14 and above. 
And so we have to actually do those textured things of living in real community with real people and not thinking of ourselves as passive victims of these forces that are really far away from us. And so I'm, I'm against those distant determinisms and I'm for the place where you actually live being the place where you're trying to love a neighbor. No, I like, I mean, I, I agree with all that. I mean, this, this is the challenge for me to, to talk about this book because it's kind of like my spirit animal. And I, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been on the same page for a lot of this stuff for a very long time. And I, and it's, I wish it, I wish the book had come out, you know, about a year before mine did so I could just steal more from it. But, you know, one of, but on this idea that, you know, look, I agree with you. Most of the problems are going to be bottom up rather than top down. Most of the solutions will be bottom up rather than top down. But, you know, uh, you're a senator, so one of the things in, in your lane, right, you have to think about is at the very least, what can the government do in a sort of Hippocratic sense of, of, of doing no more harm, right? And it seems to me that, you know, one of my favorite metaphors uh, explaining the differences between the French and English Enlightenments is the gardens of the time and the the French gardens – of the enlightenment of sort of the Versailles era where these hyper rational, you know, curly cues and corkscrews and right angles and triangles where they bent nature to an abstract vision. And the English version was the notion of the English garden where the role of the gardener was to create basically a zone of liberty for the, the, the plants in the garden to become their best selves. And it seems to me that's the tradition that the, that the, in the Anglo-American tradition, that's the, the philosophical prism through which government should be looking at things is ways to set up gardens around the country that yeah. let them achieve their best selves, right? How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. So let, let me agree with you at the philosophical first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you a lightning round of a few specific policies too, but to your garden metaphor, I think that's right that Washington needs to understand its role as maintaining a framework for ordered liberty, not try, and I mean the word frame on purpose, um, not trying to be the center of every frame. So, you know, Washington uh, and others, but many of the founders who used the phrase of the silver frame and then the golden apple at the middle, uh, the declaration is actually defining some of what a good life looks like and, and what the pursuit looks like. But the constitutional structure is supposed to be the frame so that in the middle, the, the little communities can flower where Americans actually live, where you're actually designing the better mousetrap or the new app or where you're building the, the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis or your coach in Little League or your, uh, your, where you're raising your kids, right? So the, the center of the world for every American should be the neighborhood where they actually live, and Washington should be a servant community for those places. At the level of specific policy, that should mean a revivification of federalism, right? When you kill federalism, you're undermining place and you're saying, let's suck all power and all decision-making to Washington, D.C. That's what's happening right now when five of the richest counties in America uh, are among the five of the seven richest counties in America are suburbs of Washington, D.C. So D.C. is right now saying, oh, things are broken. So give us more power and authority. D.C. should be figuring out a way to do federalism right. Unless I know obviously more of your listeners are on the right than the left, but less people on the left say, oh, this is just a, another uh, traditional Republican argument. I think we should be having big debates about federalism with innovative, pragmatic, democratic mayors as well. 
So much of federalism historically was around a state structure, and that's our constitutional structure. But we should be having debates about what kinds of questions should be solved uh, in urban centers, right? I, I think that we need to think about a new world where we have a debate about whether or not we'd like to see a less powerful Washington, D.C. and a lot more more powerful mayors. So there could be laboratories of democracy happening right now. There are important transportation policy debates to be had. And when most metro regions bridge some state line and there are infinite uh, federal mandates and and regulatory red tape, we, we don't really see much of that innovation happening in metro regions. So I'd like to see us revivify federalism. I think we should be having a big debate about what education policy looks like in the world. And some of why I wrote The Vanishing American Adult about perpetual adolescence a couple years ago is because I think our categories of assuming primary school, secondary school, and higher education, I think some of those categories are messed up. And the age definition that somehow 18 is this magic moment where we know the vast majority of people are now going to try college, but then huge shares of them don't actually succeed in finishing. I'd like us to think about mucking up a little bit that line between under 18 and post 18, because I think we should be doing more experimentation that crowds below age 18 to see some innovation. And I'd like to see a lot more diversity in that space. And I think one piece of that will be technology driven. But I I think some of it, meaning that hybridization of higher education will surely start to climb down from freshman year of college uh, into senior year of high school and junior year of high school. But we should be having bigger policy debates about what it looks like to try to have more diversity of educational form and institutional form. I think job retraining needs to be thought through so that we don't spend all of our entitlement monies basically allowing people to retire early or sort of subsidizing people's early retirement in terms of you know share of overall life expectancy. We, we're still living on a 1965 entitlement budget chassis, which assumes lifelong employment. And that isn't the experience most Americans have. McKinsey says um, that 50% of American workers are going to be functionally freelancers by three years from now. We should be thinking about a world where when people are disrupted out of jobs at 35 and 40, um, I would much rather be migrating some of our entitlement expenditures to some sort of experimentation around job retraining or educational uh, or job retraining savings account that was portable with you uh, across job and geography at an age of life when you can get employed again, as opposed to just doing what we do now, which is most of our entitlement spending is around you know 65 to 68 year olds. So there's more to say, but I think right now the government needs to stop screwing it up. Um, and there's a lot more we could talk about about the way those debates should happen too to make it less. How do we just demonize somebody in a debate and try to figure out if there are pieces of their argument we can, you know, project uh, some good intentions on? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I, I, in part because I don't have to run for office, I'm much more radical about this. I would basically like to invert the pyramid of dollars and policy and and government in this country where most tax dollars stay closer to home and the government in Washington, which only has a handful of delineated roles, should do those things well. We need an army. We need a military. We need, you know, the post offices in the Constitution. So we got to have that. But beyond that, I would block grant the VA, send all the, just give those hospitals, maybe with some extra money to help with the transition back to states. Um, let when you get when you send that stuff down to the most local level possible, one of the things you do is you let citizens who live near the problems know who to fire when the pro yep. when when things don't work. And instead, 
because we've nationalized all our politics, we have this tendency where nothing is anybody's fault. And I think that's one of the reasons why you get the populist backlash that we've got is because people feel like the government in Washington is in it for itself rather than actually attending to the needs of the people closer to the ground. Yeah. Well, so um, I, 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 I want I want to do some of those radical uh, federalist experiments, too, and largely for the reason you say as well, which is um, if you could what, what, one of the visions of which is the, the ability to be able to fire, have American citizens be able to feel like they can fire people who are not delivering. And one of the ways to do that is by having smaller chunks of responsibility, but that they're more proximate to those people. You'll also uh, fail in different ways. It isn't just the case uh, that you'll always, by having more diverse laboratories of democracy experimentation, that you'll get success right away. But even diversity of failure is better than what we do now, which is a one-size-fits-all failure from Washington that people feel has no accountability to them. Yeah, it's funny. You keep using the word diversity, and I completely understand why, and I agree with what you mean by it. But I've been sort of hung up on this point in that when I talk about federalism to college kids, you know, first you have to disabuse them of the idea that I want to bring back Jim Crow or slavery because that's what they get taught. I mean, yeah, you know, right. and it's, that's a huge problem. But, you know, instead I try to explain to them, like, you know, in Austin, there's this really passionate desire to keep Austin weird. And I'm all in favor of that. <laughs> Right. And when I'm talking, when I talk to college kids about this, I say, look, I want this to be a more interesting country to drive across where you go yeah. to weird places and there are weird things going on. I don't mean weird in a pejorative sense. I mean, in a glorious sense. And and the problem with the way we talk about diversity now is that we want sort of scalable diversity where every institution thinks the same way, but looks but is filled with people who look different. And so I talk about variety. You want, a, you know, oh, those countries. Good. And that's one of the points that I love of yours where, you know, it is deeply poisonous to talk about white America. And instead, we should be talking about how we're all members of our own various weird minorities, white, black and otherwise. But also, you know, Dungeons and Dragons geeks and, you know, weird, you know, uh, vocations or religions or, or whatever. You know, you want more variety in this country, not less. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, so there's a couple of things. One is this aligns well with your point about the English garden, right? You want that um, diversity or variety of place to partly comport with different topography, different geography, uh, different uh, densities around different parts of the country, different basic economics, right? There's a calendar where I live in rural Nebraska, where this week and the last many weeks and for a few weeks left until it, it freezes, Everybody knows it's harvest right now. Different rhythms happen in community institutions because from early in the morning, I, I drove to the airport in Nebraska this morning at 4 a.m., and there were semis uh, lined up outside the grain elevator, and they'll be there after dark tonight because there's, there's a whole bunch of corn that needs to be dumped right now, and the elevators are full, and you can't get it on all the trains, and so some of it's actually in big piles next to the elevators. That affects the rhythm of flag football playoffs. Well, you don't centrally plan that, and you don't need to have the same diversity of community scheduling around Little League gets playoffs, like football, um, in a place where you're not harvesting corn until late at night on you know the last week of October, first week of November. But another way to think about this problem is what do governors compete on right now? Right now, most governors' budgets are heavily driven by Medicaid, and they can't afford their Medicaid 
but they get their share of the, the state map. But they also don't get to experiment very much to have any real accountability for it. They just get to whine about Washington. They're, they're not whining in a bad way. They legitimately don't have enough power. But they don't have any sense that they're entrepreneurs competing about diverse or variety of educational policy. And we need lots more innovation to figure out why do we have so many 17-year-olds and 19-year-olds failing through our educational institutions. I'd like to see governors not have their uh, scare quotes diversity around the tiny little bits of difference in their Medicaid programs that are ostensibly state Medicaid programs, but they're mandated, you know, 90 some percent out of Washington. And then they don't have any bandwidth left to run on education policy. Well, I'd like to see our education policy innovating a lot more at the ground level. And we should admit the difference between the good diversity of what we should want in education policy and the bad diversity of how little uh, variety actually exists in the the delivery of our Medicaid programs. So, uh, listeners of this podcast um, are m- much relieved because on Ben Sass Bingo, you finally mentioned corn, which is like a staple of everybody's you know uh, uh, portfolio of uh, for Remnant uh, Podcast Bingo. I know you got to hop in, you got to hop off in a second, just because I'm very curious about what your answer is. It's a little it's, it's related to this topic, but maybe a little off on the book. Where do you come down on whether or not it was a whether or not the Seventeenth Amendment was a mistake? That's a great question. Uh, I, in general, oppose the Seventeenth Amendment. I mean, we have it now, so we we need to amend it. But right now, what happens is not. Uh, you, you don't have people in the Senate taking a long-term view. So the Seventeenth Amendment, for for those who are not doing constitutional nerddom with us. Uh, every day is the direct election of senators as opposed to being selected by your state governments. The the Senate has a couple of purposes that are different than the House. One of the most basic is with a six-year term instead of a two-year term, you're supposed to be taking a longer perspective on the big challenges the nation faces instead of trying to ride, you know, the populist wave of any, you know, 23 and a half months that are behind you or in front of you. Um, right. But, but the second thing what... that the one just one point on that. you're also supposed to be representing the in the corporate and sovereign interests of your state right and that's one yeah, of the things that drives second. me cr- yeah. okay i'm sorry go on so go ahead. i'm headed to the second point yeah yeah so to me the two big differences are six versus two year terms and the fact that senators were supposed to be representing states that's why there are two of us there's equal representation of the states. Every state gets two. It's not equal representation of every numerically quantifiable census population groups, right? So what's supposed to be happening is that senators are supposed to be fighting for a diversity of solutions so that Washington doesn't pretend one size fits all fits uh, Vermont's, you know, nice garden-like agricultural interests and Nebraska's (laughs) scaled agriculture that's actually feeding real people all over the world, right? No offense to your 17 listeners in Vermont, but we're supposed to be fighting for that. And the the Senate is uh, is a broken place. Uh, But I think one big, bigger part of that problem um, isn't just the 17th Amendment. It's the way that cable news is swallowing what the Senate does. The Senate is a place that's filled with people right now who seem to want to play pundits so they can be building a brand on personality politics um, rather than trying to solve real problems through debate. And so I, I am a, a mild skeptic of the 17th Amendment, but I don't think that's the main reason the Senate doesn't work right now. I think the main reason it doesn't work right now is because we're not debating a small number of really big and long-term things. So uh, you you just you can just drop off when you need to, but it, in that on that front, 
what is it? Because this is, you know, this is my big parliament of pundits point about, you know, Washington, <laughs> which we've talked about before. You know, it just, I mean, Ben Chaffetz is a really nice guy, but he literally quit the Congress to become a Fox News contributor, which is not how it's supposed to work. Um, what institutionally then, if you're not going to get rid of the 17th Amendment, what if you could, if you could, if Cocaine Mitch would grant you one wish <laughs> to structurally change the Senate, what would you do? And, and before we answer, I just want to say that Cocaine Mitch is one of the greatest innovations uh, in, in American <laughs> life in the last two years. I had a guy actually just give me a tank top the other day. Uh, my wife was prohibiting me from wearing it uh, more because of it. it's a tank top than because it has this sweet uh, 1980s lettering. Um, and it just says Cocaine Mitch with streaks through it like a, an IROC uh, Camaro Z28 accelerating <laughs> out. And it, it just has a picture of Mitch McConnell's face with like cocaine raining down all around him. And it just says cocaine Mitch on this red tank. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to try to get leader McConnell to, to wear it on the Senate floor someday. Um, I think taking cameras out of committee hearing rooms seems small or sound, might sound small. I think it would have a dramatic effect on the institution. I think right now you have a whole bunch of senators who don't really do a lot of homework, don't really take a long view on what our challenges are, and just sort of are willing to wait in line all day to do serial five-minute shots at a soundbite that may or may not be picked up on, on cable news. And I, I, I think it's just, it's disastrous. It, there's, there's a reason why fundraising e emails uh, are sent out during congressional hearings. Uh, there's, there's no fundraising email that you can write that says, what do we want? prudent change. When do we want it in the fullness of time? Right. But that's what the Senate should be doing. The Senate should be doing prudent change at the appropriate time. But right now you've got a whole bunch of people playing pundit out of the Senate. And so all the incentives in the institution are wrong. And I'll, I'll go one more level of, of nerdy with you. In corporate America, and I don't just mean for-profit America, but I mean uh, in, in corporate structures in America, so that includes not-for-profits at the community level in Dodge County, Nebraska, there's a distinction between legislative and executive functions, which is centuries old and works really well, and it starts with the principle that committees make better decisions than individuals, but individuals execute better than committees. And that sort of Tocquevillian sense from you know uh, America pre 1776 clearly informed the logic of an article 1 article 2 distinction in our constitution and we are supposed to have a legislature that wrestles through the strategic prioritization of which problems probably actually might not be soluble by the private sector and therefore need to be done in the public sector and probably can't be totally solved at the state and local level, so might need to rise all the way to the level of public sector and in Washington. There's a limited number of those things. And once you decide you got one of those problems, you should be locked on it like a pit bull, as this is an urgent matter we should fight about for a, as long as it takes this debate to get to some sort of supermajority resolution in America. Right. Like that's what the Senate is supposed to do when it claims to be the greatest deliberative body. That isn't what we do right now. We just sort of assume that in the age of television or in the age of, you know, clickbaity Internet, um, only the president can be the bully pulpit 
commandeer that can be the policy initiator. And so the Senate, the Congress as a whole, but the the Senate, it's a more tragic loss because the House is supposed to be a more populist body. We don't really do that long-term deliberation. We have this sense that a whole bunch of people are just using the Senate to want to be pundits. And I think if you took out cameras uh, in the committee hearing rooms, I mean, still have print and pad, let's have full transparency, let's allow a lot of reporters to be there, but take away the incentives of senators to try to posture and and preen before the cameras, that would change the culture. And the committee structures themselves, and I'm sure I'll get myself in trouble with colleagues here who've been, you know, spending term after term trying to get enough seniority uh, in their committee. The committee jurisdiction should be really rethought, and committees should function more like servants of the main body, meaning that I think the, the word Congress means meeting. Um, a Congress lasts two years, And at the beginning of every two years, we ought to have a deliberation for about a month uh, about what are the most important three or five or seven things we can get done over the next 24 months. And then we ought to delegate power from the full Senate to committees to do precise, definable work. And instead, what happens now is all of these little fiefdoms that are committees sort of become occasions for mini grandstanding to hope people can get sound bites out of them. And there's not a lot of serious deliberation that happens there. That's my cocaine Mitch ask for this fall. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't see him granting it, but um, it's it's nice to think about. Um, hey, look, I mean, there's a lot more stuff I would love to talk to you about. And people, it's really it's, it really is a wonderful and very timely and useful book. It makes a great companion to this other book I could mention, but I won't. And um, I think uh, the side of the West is probably worth reading. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate that. That, that. This is why this is why I'm glad you didn't ultimately give me a blurb. Um, so uh, still, next time I'm we get still bad about this snafu. And thanks for bringing it up again, just to pull, pour salt in the wounds of embarrassment. Yeah, well, kind of you. It's it, it, it is a big part of my faith tradition to exude guilt from people. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but let's get you back in the studio sometime, and we can we can go deeper in the weeds on a lot of this stuff because I think there's a lot more to talk uh, about. But thank you for doing this. Thank you. I look forward to it. And as somebody who's lived in Austin twice, I will bring my favorite uh, Keep Austin Weird series of bumper stickers because there's some stuff there that's better comic genius than any late night in America right now. Dude, if you wear the Cocaine Mitch tank top, we will live stream the podcast recording um, on YouTube or something for video, um, which I think would, I've that, actually that got awesome. it as a tat. I've got it as a tattoo already. I'll, I'll send you a, a JPEG. Sweet. All right, man. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Good luck on the road. All right, so now we are back a day later from when that interview or that conversation happened. As you could tell from the uh, interview, I had the exact same problem that Jack and I sort of had with the book. And it's a good problem to have, but it, there's a really weird kind of mind meld between me and Sass. I don't mean to say that in some sort of arrogant way. He's smarter than I am, and he's a senator. But we really see so many of our problems the exact same way, which is why he's on this podcast so much. And when you read the book, it kind of feels like almost a companion piece to certain aspects of, of, of my book, you know, and, and certainly of the way I've been talking about the book on the stump about, you know, the role of civil society and how our problems are upstream of Washington and that the important thing is to differentiate is not to say that tribalism is bad, but that the important thing is to channel 
that tribal instinct into healthy and productive ways through institutions closest to home rather than having people look to Washington and look to nationalize politics or nationalism as a substitute for the sense of meaning and belonging you get closer to home. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of the book. I'm a big fan of Sass's, and I thought it was an interesting conversation. I mean, you had the sort of the same feeling when you were reading the book, right, Jack? Yeah, the main difference between your book, <coughs> excuse me, and his is that he is much more dedicated to Nebraska football than you are. I, that's a low bar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and much more dedicated to the Friday night high school gym feeling than you are. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And also, his book doesn't start 250,000 years ago. But the you know it's, it's one of these interesting things. I mean, there's been so much stuff about tribalism and all of the rest, and it does seem like there's sort of an this interesting intellectual consensus forming in various places about the importance of these things. I, I think in some way, I mean, you can, you can take this all the way back to, you know, Robert Nisbet and, and Peter Berger. I mean, the enormous amount of stuff has been written about mediating institutions and civil society going back decades. But in the modern period, I think a lot of this comes, the, the sort of starter's pistol was Charles Murray's coming apart, mm-hmm. where he really sort of noticed this problem of social capital eroding for all sorts of reasons with the white working class. Lots of people had pointed you know, William Julius Wilson and others have pointed out the problems of, you know, the African-American community, which are sort of a, an, an analog to the problems that are unfolding in all sorts of communities today. But anyway, I think it's all really interesting in this, this, this point that he makes, which I think is fantastic, that we actually want more and more people to think of themselves as members of minorities, but not as an, in, an identity politics sort of way, but as a, um, a variety of different faiths, communities, orientations, and all of the rest. And the perniciousness, which is coming largely from the left, of trying to treat all of white America as a monolithic block is so dangerous and so pernicious. And the they should be profoundly careful about getting what they wish for because if everybody in quote-unquote white America starts putting their identity almost entirely into their skin color, that is a just a really dangerous way to go for the country and for people's souls, I would argue. Anyway, so we have enough with Ben Sass for the moment. Uh, we're going to try and get him back in the studio to do more of this stuff down the road. Um, midterms on Tuesday. Jack, do you have any predictions? <laughs> Are you- <laughs> Are you asking me that question? I don't know. You know, you're a citizen. You have concerns. Um, no? Right. Uh, well, okay. Here's my – I'll put on my pundit hat and then take it off very quickly. Uh, Republicans lose the House, keep the Senate, the end. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. Um, okay. My pundit hat is off. Now. Yeah, no. And, and it, it, I have to say it didn't fit very well. No, but, it uh, didn't. Very uncomfortable. So I, what, here's what I think is going on with Trump – in the last two weeks, I think it's uh, it was on NPR this morning um, talking about this. Maybe we can link to that. You know, and as I said on NPR, part of the problem of trying to come up with clever explanations and rationales for why Trump is doing X and Y is that to some extent it's like finding faces in clouds, right? I mean, you can it, it's a Rorschach test. You have people on the left who are doing a lot of the same thing that they did to George W. Bush. I mean, I was always amazed by this under Bush, 
where you would have left-wingers simultaneously argue that Bush was an unreconstructed moron, but he was also the mastermind of the single greatest and most complex conspiracy in American history. Well, that was why Cheney became the stand-in. That's right, in part, I think. But um, Bush had to have known about it, right? <laughs> um, and Cheney was just that good. And so you get sort of weird mirror images of this on both the left and the right, where people want to Trump-splain um, what he's doing in increasingly complicated ways. And if if so I, I always want to stipulate that the Occam's razor suggests that Trump is just being Trump and there's no grand strategy behind it. But in this case, I think that there is a little strategery to it in the sense that the White House has better access to polling than you know, than we do. And they see that by all in all likelihood, the House is lost. And so part of what they're trying to do is mitigate the loss. And but what they're really trying, and I, I think they're utterly failing at that, which we'll get to in a second. But what their um, their real concern is the Senate, and so the 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 Trump rallies are all done in deep deep Trump country, and the people who attend them are all pure base. So part of that is is, and and those aren't the congressional districts that will decide the margin of victory or loss in the midterms. And so what Trump is doing is trying to gin up turnout for the Senate races. And I think at that level, that's a smart and successful thing to do. And as a conservative, but not necessarily all that enthusiastic a Republican, I'm glad for it because I want the Republicans to hold on to the Senate so cocaine Mitch can keep chugging along with the judicial appointments and whatnot. I don't think anything policy-wise is really going to come out of the House for the next two years, no matter who gets in there. And there's this weird irony that neither party can admit that. Um, you know, Republicans want to say if the Democrats get control of the House, they're going to do all of these terrible things. And the reality is they can't so long as Republicans hold on to the Senate. And the Republicans want to suggest that they're going to get all these great th keep the things going that are good and do all even more wonderful stuff, even though they won't name any of it except for maybe infrastructure. And the reality is, is that they're not going to be able to get anything done either. And we're going to be in campaign mode almost the day after the election. But the problem is, and why I don't think this is actually working on the House side, is that, first of all, any district that is, in, that is a toss-up right now, not any, but almost all of the districts that are toss-up, are these purplish districts that went for Hillary but also elected a Republican or went narrowly for Trump. And uh, and the demographic that they need the most are these sort of, uh, you know, these college-educated uh, suburbanites, particularly Republican women, um, who have almost vanished from the, the, the polling data. And... And that's one of the reasons why I think the upper Midwest is kind of slipping away from the Republicans or why a lot of the vulnerable seats are out there. And so the thing is, you know, I, I don't remember who first said this on Twitter, but there is probably not a single candidate, Republican incumbent, who is trying to win over a purplish district that requires winning over you know, college educated, married, suburbanites, Republican win independence that wanted Donald Trump to start talking about revoking birthright citizenship. This hurts Republicans in those districts. And so if, if we're going to go to a you know, criminal mastermind theory about what Trump is doing, I kind of suspect that Trump or his advisors understand this and don't care, A, because they want to get the senators elected, but B, because they kind of 
might want to have the Democrats take over the House because Trump thinks it would be better for him to run against Nancy Pelosi in 2020. But C, the the Republicans who win in this climate, particularly as Trump is talking about the caravan and birthright, enemy of the people and all of this stuff, the Republicans who win are going to be winning from super Trumpy uh, districts. And so in a lot of ways, this will further solidify the Trumpification of the Republican Party because all of the Republicans who are vulnerable are the ones who are most likely to criticize Trump to one extent or, or to break with him in some way. And the people left behind are the ones who are embracing Trumpism and trying to mirror it. And so um, you can see why in a sort of Steve Bannon mode, you would actually want to see the Republicans lose all of the the Kaufmans and Comstocks and Ryan types um, and be left with a smaller Republican Party, Republican minority in the House, but that was much more invested in the sort of the cult of personality part of the sort of nationalist, Trumpified GOP. And I think that's probably what is going to happen. And as listeners of this podcast know, that does not necessarily make me particularly happy. Um, I should say on the birthright citizenship thing, there's a, there's an enormous amount of stupid things being said about it. Um, I think that the way you should think about it is there are three separate questions. One is, um, is it constitutional? What is the constitutional issue, right? Um, is the, does the 14th Amendment say what has been interpreted as saying about birthright citizenship? Then the second question is, can Donald Trump get rid of it through an executive order? And then the third question is, regardless of the legalisms or the constitutional questions, would it be good policy? Now, it seems to me the answer to the first two questions is fairly easy, even though you have to keep in mind that the Constitution only says what the Supreme Court end, uh, ends up saying it should say, which is one of the signs of the corruption of our system. Uh, the idea that the Supreme Court is the only branch of government charged with defending the Constitution is hot garbage. Congress used to vote on the constitutionality of legislation all the time, and if it failed that vote, the legislation was immediately dead. Every federal office elected official swears to uphold the Constitution. But anyway, that's the world that we live in. So it kind of just depends what judges on what day get asked this question. But it seems to me if you read this this opinion by this guy, Judge Ho, um, maybe we can link to it in the show notes. It just strikes me as, well, not, again, not it can't be dispositive and absolutely 100% clear. It strikes me as the overwhelming amount of evidence and, and argumentation and historical precedent suggests that the 14th Amendment means that if you're born here, you're an American, period. That seems to be what the real intent was, and that seems to be what the way it has been interpreted for a very long time, which has binding power, both because judges interpreted it that way and uh, Congress interpreted it that way, which brings you to the second point. In 19, I think, 52... Congress passed a law codifying in law that interpretation of the Constitution, that interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And so, which, first of all, lends weight, this is point Andy McCarthy makes, you know, this lends weight to the view that that's actually what the 14th Amendment means. And even if it doesn't, it means that Donald Trump cannot issue an executive order getting, you know, rewriting what the 14th Amendment means, because it would also mean rewriting what the expressed position of the legislature is, which is the controlling authority on this. We have a law that says that's what it means. That's what the 14th Amendment means. And the president cannot override that by executive order. 
And it is astounding in a sort of sad, pathetic way to see how many people, you know, if you watch, if you just follow this debate on Twitter, how the MAGA crowd, which was completely right a few years ago, beating the crap about uh, about Barack Obama's executive orders violating the Constitution by, by Barack Obama's own standards, now saying, well, of course Donald Trump can do it because it's good policy. And the way that they're going after me and Rich Lowry and other people and National Review for actually having some intellectual consistency um, is really sort of amazing to behold. I shouldn't say amazing, but because it's sadly not that surprising, but it is kind of amazing nonetheless. Um, the same way that fatbergs are amazing. Do you know what a fatberg is? No. A fatberg is a is when basically all the stuff that's flushed down the toilet that isn't processed, so like grease and also stuff that goes in drains, uh-huh. grease and like wet wipes, just sort of... Paul Krugman's column? Yeah, Paul Krugman's <laughs> column congeals in a pipe and just starts growing and they get they get they can become the size of like city blocks down there, and uh, maintenance workers have to go and just break them up with uh, power washers and and other intense tools. It's just it's ridiculous. So that's like I consider that to be like if I saw that, I would be amazed in a way. And but so, also not surprised. Oh uh, yeah, because I mean <laughs> Cause we you don't exist. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. And then there's the third question, which is. Would it be good policy? If we could convince Congress to get rid of birthright citizenship or we could amend the Constitution, would it be worth doing? And there, I'm sort of with Trump and, you know, Mark Krikorian and all those kinds of guys to the extent that I think it's a perfectly defensible policy. I mean, Donald Trump's wrong when he says we're the only country in the world that has birthright citizenship. I think there are like three dozen countries that have birthright citizenship. Um, but put that aside, I think it's entirely legitimate to talk about getting rid of it or revising it. I don't think it makes you racist or evil or nativist to talk about doing that. I mean, we didn't talk about it with Raihan on the immigration thing, but I'm sure he agrees. But as Raihan also points out, it's not that big a deal. It's not the biggest driver of our immigration issues. And so I think it is almost entirely a sideshow. And I think it is driven in large part because Donald Trump really hated all the attention being on the mail bombs and the synagogue shooting and he would rather have negative attention about himself than try to have to talk in that climate, particularly going into the midterms. And so I think it's all cynical garbage for the most part. But a lot of people are just getting way out of the ahead of the facts and the relevant arguments on all of this. What else do we have to talk about? Oh, I am following closely. I don't have we don't have time to talk about this in great detail because it's an unfolding thing as we're talking. But I love this frame job of Robert Mueller's story more than some relatives of mine. Um, I mean, it is fantastic. Have you been following it? Yeah, I um, I have to keep tabs on what my peers are doing. Because <laughs> uh, Jacob Wool is what, like 20? Can like, you do an explainer about it? or do you? Uh, f- basically, my understanding of it is that Jacob Wool, this sort of created conservative wonderkind Fox News personality. Is he on Fox News? He was because of his da- his dad was Fox Business, I think. Okay. So what, he he and this 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 weird lobbyist dude tr- tried to create this conspiracy to frame Mueller as a sexual predator, but they did it in the most amateur way possible. They left clear breadcrumbs in all the stuff that they made up 
to loaves of bread. Yeah, loaves of bread. Yeah, I would. Yeah, fatbergs. Lo- yeah, fatbergs of evidence that they were clearly faking these things. But there are. You say they're not doubling down. Is that yeah? Correct? So as I was coming in to do this, uh, well, they are doubling down. Rather, yeah, they are doubling down. They had a press conference this afternoon. I don't know how it ended. I imagine, given the way the live tweets were going, it ended with Jacob Wall taking a ball peen hammer and applying it vigorously to his own crotch because it was I mean, because I mean talk about the breadcrumbs for a second they created this fake intelligence company a uh, private detective company or something called surefire intelligence and that created these fake linkedin things for it and they have these photos of staffers which were like stock photos of supermodels and other people and the official phone number for this thing was his – if you called it, you got his mom's voicemail. <laughs> and, and he left – Jacob Wall left his name in the uh, domain registration for one of the – for the for some website he created as part of this process. Yeah. And so you know, I joked on Twitter when the story first broke that we needed like an I, Tanya-like movie about this, uh, maybe done by the Coen brothers because it's so – it's so glorious in its patheticness. And – um, though on a serious note, anybody who defends these guys, if it turns out that they, what they really tried to do was totally smear, um, and defame Robert Mueller, which it definitely sounds like what they're doing. Um, if you got mad about what the left did to Brett Kavanaugh and you don't denounce this, if you defend this, cause this was done in the name of MAGA or something like that, then you're a terrible person. Because what they were trying to do is destroy an honorable man's reputation with false allegations of, of according to the stuff I saw on Twitter this afternoon, of brutal rape. That, you know, this is no different than the allegations that, that, that Brett Kavanaugh ran a rape gang. And if you are a, you have, if you have situational ethics about this, you gotta, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because I mean, there's just, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny because it was so ham-fisted and stupid, but it's also profoundly evil. And I'm I'm really more and more coming to the – I think the consolation prize for the timeline that we're in, for the orb touching, <laughs> is that I think Trump will probably get away okay from the Mueller investigation. But I think – and to be honest, if they're guilty, I hope a lot of secondary characters, a lot of Rosencrantz's and Guildensterns like Roger Stone and Jacob Wool are going to jail – and I will laugh my ass off about it because as a great consolation prize. I, I'm glad you said if they're guilty because we still have presumption of innocence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't I – won't, I'm not going to defend these people, but they should go through a trial or something before they're imprisoned. Um, but yes, they probably in all likelihood are, are guilty of some very stupid and or illegal things. Yeah, although this raises a point that comes up all the time. The presumption of innocence thing is a procedural thing. Yes. And I understand that journalistically you're supposed to say alleged and I do that. Everyone does that. That's all fine too. But I don't need to say that O.J. Simpson didn't murder his ex-wife because he got off in court. I think O.J. Simpson murdered his ex-wife. And Hot takes from the 90s. Yeah, no, but my, my point is is that you every now and then you'll get this thing about how they're innocent until proven guilty. Well, I don't have to think they're innocent until proven guilty. You don't have to think. You can use your own judgment and come to conclusions. Court system has to operate as if someone is innocent until proven guilty. Yes. And and so, yeah, but I, I agree with you with that in principle. I don't want anyone who's innocent to go to jail for anything. I mean, I can think of some people, but no, I really I don't, want any, <laughs> I don't want any innocent people to go to jail. But if guilty, this is just, I mean, it's, it's so great. And because um, they're terrible people. 
Anyway, what else? Do is there anything else that we need to cover? Well, I, I think the the caravan is outside the door. Ah, it's here. Ah, the caravan. Oh, one last thing on the on the guilty thing. Just because I listened to it in the car ride down here, the McCarthy Report, which is a great podcast, and it's 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 breaking the um the chains of nicheness, which um something we're gonna have to deal with. Andy McCarthy told tells the story, and spoiler alert: if you want to hear him tell it, that's fine. It's at the very last minute of the podcast. But they were talking about Whitey Bulger being murdered in jail. And I knew that Whitey Bulger was a bad person. Uh-huh. You know, that's sort of settled. Um, <laughs> but I didn't realize how unbel- – like, if the story that Andy tells is true, it makes the the Jack Nicholson version of Whitey Bulger a much nicer person than the reality of Whitey Bulger. What movie did Jack Nicholson play Whitey Bulger in? Oh, was it The Departed? The Departed was based on him. Oh, I, I was going to say because Johnny Depp at played actually him yeah. in – a recent film um, called I, Whitey or something like that, right? Black Mass. Black Mass, yeah. Okay. Whitey is something different, I guess. But um, so he um, he killed these two guys, right? These the two brothers-in-law of some woman he was dating or something like that. And one of them, they got rid of the body and it was never found. And people were hunting for it for months. And then Whitey Bulger, I don't know why I'm telling the story because it's so friggin' dark. But I just it, was, it really kind of shook me. Whitey Bulger calls the home of one of the missing stepbrother, the missing guy he murdered, and the guy's 10-year-old son answers the phone. And Whitey Bulger tells the son, this 10-year-old kid, daddy's not coming home for Christmas. And the kid goes, who is this? And Whitey Bulger says, Santa Claus. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so like, <laughs> so evil, right? And so Andy was telling it in the context of how while it's a kind of terrible thing to beat to death a dude who's 89 years old in a wheelchair, there are limits to the sympathy one can have for someone like Whitey Bulger. Yeah. I just thought it was a fascinating thing. If, um, this, if, if, if this were um, in a movie, the, the movie would end with the, that kid being the one who killed him. Yeah, that's right. That's but, right. Probably but, played by Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's a there's a movie. I think that's more or less what happens in um, a Bronx Tale. I think that's exactly what happens. Is that right? At the like at the very beginning, some father of someone is murdered, and then his son is the one who kills um, the not Robert De Niro's character's name. Yeah, um, I think that's what happens. Well, that's also the moral of the story of Godfather Two, right? Because De Niro gets away. Oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, that's they, better. That's they tried better. to kill Vito Vandellini, oh, and then yeah, he yeah. wakes, he grows up, and he goes back and and uh, does that uh, sort of enforced seppuku thing. Yeah, on the old man. I'm sorry, I'm kind of disappointed that I thought of a Bronx Tale before Godfather Part Two. Um, oh well. Yeah, on the caravan thing. Look, I, I agree with Rich Lowry. It's a real issue. I agree that the United States is in its power to enforce the border. Um, and that we should do what we can to put pressure where we can on Mexico and these other countries to have these things come to a stop. I also think it is just ridiculously cynical the way this has been reported on from sort of Fox News types and from and the way it's talked about by Donald Trump. Uh, the idea that we need to send 15,000 troops to the border to stop this thing I think is insane. It's all profoundly exaggerated uh, hype. And if it's true, I saw, you know, it came from Media Matters, and so I instantly don't trust it. But I saw some chart that said that when the 
pipe bombs were being mailed and that story was going through the roof and everybody was covering it. For obvious reasons, the uh, MSNBC and CNN reported on the caravan less, but Fox News reported on the caravan more. And I probably shouldn't be talking about this kind of stuff because my contract's coming up and we'll see. But this is so obviously to me a huge sort of bloody shirt distraction and it is, you know, it kind of it pings on this part of our ba- brains that is terrified of strangers, terrified of contagion, right? That's why he talks about how they're full of disease. Um, I think it's dehumanizing and so transparent. Is Trump talking about them being full of disease? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought that was just that guest on Lou Dobbs' show. No, I think Trump – I saw something – if I got that wrong, I apologize. But I saw something on Twitter coming in about how Trump brought it up today. But it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's this mutual – amplification feedback loop where, you know, Lou Dobbs is basically a de facto White House spokesperson working on the outside. And um, and that's the way they're they're pushing this stuff anyway. So, yeah, I think um, another just wrap up midterm stuff. I think Gillum wins in Florida, which is bad, but I can't say that I'll be sad to see DeSantis lose. I mean, I would rather Republicans hold on to it, but I didn't like the way he ran. I don't like the way he campaigns. I didn't think he did his homework. I think he, when you when you run as pro, run for governor of a sovereign state, promising to be the sort of lickspittle Renfield of the president of the United States rather than an independent actor, um, you kind of deserve what you get. Ted Cruz will win walking away. The Beto O'Rourke thing was all was just he's he's. He's a male Wendy Davis. There is this wish casting about Democrats turning Texas blue. Um, I think one of the greatest perfect ex- examples of liberal media bias in recent months was the fact that it took until about two days ago to find out that Beto O'Rourke is the son-in-law of a billionaire. There, How many profiles have been done of this guy? And no one thought that was worth mentioning. Um, that is a perfect example of how the mainstream media circles its wagons around charismatic liberal politicians um and you know we saw it with barack obama we see it with Beto work we see it all the time and that is one of the things that makes donald trump's enemy of the people stuff and fake news stuff have more purchase and i wish the mainstream media could understand that um oh a perfect example of this did you see the don lemon thing no so don lemon um as you might be able to tell, I don't watch much cable news. No, I know, but it, this was a big deal on Twitter, too. So um, Don Lemon, who's on CNN, he has this fantastic statement where Andrew – not Andrew Cuomo. What's the other Cuomo? Chris. Chris Cuomo asks him, you know, what are we going to do? What do we need to do? And he says, well, I think the answer is we have to stop demonizing people and realize that white men are the real terror threat in this country. And mm-hmm. – that is a perfect example of the absolute sort of uh, moral blindness that Jonathan Haidt wrote a whole book about in The Righteous Mind, where you can't – where you think all of the problems are with the other team and you can't see it on your own side. If you would if, – if anybody at Fox News had said, look, what we need to realize – we need to stop with the demonization. We need to – and recognize that the real terror threat is – um, black people or Muslim people or anything like that, they or black men or whatever, the left, the mainstream media would go berserk denouncing it, and rightly so. But logically, there is no difference between saying that and saying that white men who make up, I don't know, what, 
30% of this country, 40% of this country, 28%. I don't know what it is. I got to do the math. White people are about 76%, half of that. So that they're terrorists. I mean, you can't, it's such a dumb way to talk about things. And it's an, ex- it's, it's another example of why we can't have nice things. Yeah. You also, on Twitter, you said that it was an example of, of, a, of the, the mythical snake eating itself. Do you know what the term for that is? What? The, it's an Ouroboros. Really? Mm-hmm. What's the little uh, thing that the Hippocratic Oath, symbol of the Hippocratic Oath? That's a, a Kydacious or Kydacus staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I forget the mythological origins of it, but it has something to do with, I think it's the staff of, of Hermes, maybe. That sounds possible. Um, yeah, but that's a snake wrapped around a stick, I think, is what that what that actually is if you look at it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Clinton had that lapel pin that was the staph infection of herpes, but that's a different thing. No, I'm kidding. I just I, I just had to go where the pun was. You can't resist those Clinton <laughs> jokes, can you? Well, anyway. All right. So, um, uh, oh, uh, sort of various and sundry announcement. I, I did – I'm one of the first podcasts for uh, John Hawkins' new podcast for the guy who does right-wing news. Um, we talked about a bunch of different stuff. Check it out. I think by now we should be able to have the link. Um, I want to say thanks again to everybody who's been coming out to these speeches that I've been giving around. Really just incredibly generous, supportive stuff. But, you know, so much different than the grief I get in Twitter and email and and from random people at airports sometimes. So uh, I want to say really? thank you for that. Yeah, I get dirty looks, but that's different. And, uh, well, who knows what happens at 35X? Yeah, we don't We don't talk about 35 <laughs> Um And uh, we don't want to tempt the fates, the fates on that one. Um and uh, 35X is where uh, Robert Mueller and Donald Trump Jr. were seen in the same like terminal. Right? Yeah, so now we have to explain. Same gate. It. So 35X is the worst gate at National Airport. The second you see that you have 35X on your boarding pass, it means that uh, you know it's it's sort of like in Shawshank Redemption where the warden says, "I'm going to send you down with the sodomites and the." The, what's the other horrible people? Anyway, it's it's the worst gate. You have to get on this people mover thing. You're going to be on a tiny plane that puts you in a stress position. And there is the sort of almost like creepy, what do they call it in Stranger Things? The, the Demogorgon? No, no. Although you feel like you could see a Demogorgon, it's the underneath or the... The upside down. The upside down. It feels kind of like, you know, this mix of third world... Um, you know, maybe you'll see a chicken running across the, the, the seating area um, and mystical hardship. It's a terrible place. Um, but, yeah, that's where they encountered each other. And that's where I've flown into recently. I think I said on Twitter that I saw a minotaur. And Did he, uh, Was he mad about your latest column? My latest column? I don't know. Uh, I mean, he he could have been just one. Of these. I, I, I tend not to strike up conversations with minotaurs. Yeah, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I don't. I don't, I'm not really familiar with the minotaur American community, so um, so I don't know what their issues are. Oh, hey, so the last time we talked, you said you were going to do this uh, Rosemary's Baby stuff for Halloween. What did you end up doing for Halloween? Oh, I just. Uh, oh, well, I, this is a, such a cliche thing, actually. Uh, for cliche for me, I um I went to a. Small, a sort of small gathering with friends, and we read uh, a ghost story by Russell Kirk. Did you really? Mm-hmm. I didn't even think, like, I didn't do this so that I could talk about it later. We just did it, and now it sounds like something that I would do explicitly for that purpose. But I really did not. I didn't think you'd even ask me about it. Fascinating. Because, like, 
We had very different uh, 20s because <laughs> – That's that, well, that's an understatement. When I was in my 20s, we went to parties where like uh, my friend Scott McLucas and a couple of his buddies, they um, they dressed up as Roe v. Wade. Oh. Um, and so like one guy had oars, another guy had a oh. sweater, and the other one had hip boots on for wading, that kind of stuff. And uh, another year, we all wore orange jumpsuits to – like for, like Charlie Tree and some of the campaign finance oh, okay. the Clinton administration. Well, I saw, I didn't see this in person, but I saw on Twitter someone dressed up as the cover of Hobbes' Leviathan. Oh, that's good. Yeah, with the the sovereign, with the, well, I, he didn't cross his eyes like that, that that picture is for some reason. But he did like, found it, got a plastic sword and a and a staff and covered his, the front of himself with a bunch of uh, cutouts of people. It was really like, I, I'm I'm sort of iffy about adult young adults, especially childless young adults wearing costumes. But that one, if he if that if that person on Twitter had uh, didn't have children, I'll allow it because it was a it was pretty well done and pretty nerdy. So yeah. I'll, I'll I'll permit it. Childish young adults wearing costumes, I agree, is kind of iffy, but it's really sketchy when it's not Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, most well, so you're referring to like Comic Con and stuff. Or just like on a bus. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, or at the public library, or um, cruising around elementary schools, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, no descent for me there. Yeah. So all right, we're just rambling now because we're both trying to avoid real work. Uh, at Jonah Remnant. Um, oh, check out my zombie video for Halloween, and uh, we'll leave it there. And um, what else? Uh, Re- iTunes, reviews at iTunes. Hey, and, you know, and I haven't read the NR Plus copy in a while, and I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, it would really be great for people who are interested in National Review and um, want to be more involved in the community and get notices about special meetups and all that kind of stuff. Check out NR Plus. Um, we'll have a link on jonahgoldberg.com if, in case you need it, um, although I'm sure Mr. Google can help. And... Uh, um, until next time, I'll, I'll, I'll see you on the next podcast. No, you want to a podcast. <laughs>